sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. No sense. No mercy. everybody good fantastic I'm glad I could see each and every one of you here today it's always exciting and fun to be with God's people in his house worshiping his name because that's where his presence is and uh, we are back in the series we started before Easter for those of you who are new my name is Joey I'm the lead pastor here want to say welcome so glad you could spend some time with us today and we uh, Pray that your time with us would be an encouragement to you, that you would recognize that you matter to God and that you matter to us and that he desires to have a relationship with you. And hopefully before you leave here that you have a chance, if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, to encounter the true and living God today because he will change your life. He will. God doesn't promise a perfect life, but he does promise a blessed life if we trust Jesus Christ and follow him each and every day. Uh, to catch you up where we were before the Easter break, we began a series called Fight for Your Life. Fight for Your Life. And with that, we unpacked the reality that each and every one of us are in a spiritual battle. Every second of every day. The verse that just cascaded across the screen was written by Paul the Apostle to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2 or verse 12. And this is what Paul said to the church of Ephesus. He says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And with that, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to get in to the teaching today. Father in heaven, God, we recognize you as Lord over this service. We gather in the name of Jesus. We trust in his death and resurrection. And through the blood of Christ, we bind every spirit that would come against us right now in the name of Jesus. We close our ears to their voices. We close our hearts to their temptations, their schemes, and we cast them out of this place in the name of Jesus. And we declare that this is the throne room of our great God. This is your time. We are here for you. Open our ears that we may hear. Open our hearts that we'd be willing to receive and not press against the truth, but humbly receive the truth. God, and I pray as we unpack these very real and very necessary topics, God, I pray that each one of us would analyze our hearts. We'd take inventory of our own lives, and we would respond to the Spirit as he leads in our lives, God. We want to be a people that gives glory to the name of Christ with all that we are. We want to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. 
And so many times we get caught up in the world. We get caught up with the lies of the enemy, God. And we silence those voices right now in the name of Jesus. We turn our attention to the truth and we give you the glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We are in a constant state of struggle against the forces of darkness. In week one of this series, and again, if you haven't been with us when we started this series, you can follow along with us by going to our website, vlchurch.tv. The messages are online, and I believe you could also uh, catch up with us on our YouTube page. We're streaming live on YouTube, so I want to say and give a shout out to all the YouTubers today. Those are watching from home or other places, welcome. We're glad that you're with us today. Um, But week one, we took a look that even from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, there was a spiritual battle going on. And God had a conversation with Cain just after he murdered his brother. The first recorded murder, premeditated murder in all of history. God comes to Cain and and he has this conversation and he tells Cain, he said, sin is crouching at the door desiring to control you. And he wasn't just talking about this fallen nature that we have because of Adam's sin. When Adam ate the fruit, whether it was an apple or a grape or a raisin, who knows what it was, but whatever he ate off the tree of knowledge of good and evil unleashed hell into the world. Brokenness, dysfunction, the darkness in our hearts are a result of that very first sin. The Word of God says that our our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We don't even really know how wicked they are. They deceive us into thinking we're better than what we really are. And that fallen nature, we call the sin nature. But God wasn't just talking about the sin nature wanting to control us. Nor was he just talking about the things that the enemy tempts us to do to get us to bring dysfunction into our lives, like lying, cheating, stealing, being unfaithful, and the like, the things we would call sins, the mistakes that we do. No, God was talking about a specific person named Satan our great enemy, the, the person that sets himself up as the God of this world. He is the hijacked ruler of this world. And God said, Satan is lurking at the door of your heart, eager and waiting to control you. And when he is allowed into your life, he implements his plans, his only purpose in life, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. Week two, we talked about and discussed how Satan as the hijacked ruler of this world, has set up his own kingdom. And just like we read in Ephesians chapter 6, there are really three main types of spiritual forces that we encounter in this life. And he sets up these classes of spirits as a hierarchy in his demonic kingdom. And then by and large, as we go through this life and we face struggles in our relationships, in our marriages, at work, as we can't kick habits and we realize we keep doing the same stupid stuff over and over again, we see brokenness and dysfunction in our communities, in our state, in our world, that it is a result of one of those levels of spiritual forces. Their influence or power at work in our lives, in the lives of other people, and in the, lo- in the world that we see. And we looked in week two that there is this thing that we call doorways or open doors. That these doorways are opened to the enemy when we sin, either through having a sinful attitude or actually uh, committing an act of sin. And there's multiple kinds of sin in the world. There's sins that we know about and sins that we don't know about. James said, if you know to do something good and you don't do it, then that is sin. So it's not just the bad things we do that is sin before God, but it's also in the failing of doing good things that is sin before God. There's a lot of things that the enemy uses to leverage against us to gain entrance into our lives, to gain entrance into our lives to oppress us and to bring about his plans of stealing, 
killing, and destroying. To actually enter into our very bodies and bring uh, infirmity and uh, different types of oppressive uh, states of mind. We looked at last week that demons don't have a right to our bodies because we as children of God are the possession of Christ. He bought us with a high price. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, Jesus has given us by our faith great authority in the world and in the spiritual world. And so demons can't just come in and do what they like with, with us whenever they want. We have to grant them permission or authority like getting a driver's license. You get a driver's license, which gives you license to drive your vehicle on the road. When we sin, when we commit acts of sin against God, we grant the enemy license to come in and work about their schemes and plans in our lives. In week three, we discussed a subject called strongholds. This is the mechanism or the manifestation of the enemy's work in our lives. These are character traits or tendencies or patterns that we see in our lives that manifest when the demonic is active and permitted to go unchallenged within us. Strongholds are the mechanisms demons use to operate their plans of destruction. Some strongholds can be stronger than others, some weaker than others. Some show up for a time and some keep reoccurring. And this is what the enemy uses to, to manifest dysfunction, struggle, and hardship, and affliction into our lives and into the lives of those around us. Jesus, when he was speaking about demons, he referred to them as the tormentors, the torturers. And this is an apt illustration of a stronghold. It's like a slow, agonizing, torturous death, where a person uh, longs for, because of the misery in their life, longs for death. Have you ever felt like that before? You're just going through something, and you're just like, man, I wish I was never born. I wish I could just give it all up. I wish I could throw in the towel. I wish that I could just die. Even if you didn't mean it, I'm sure you've said it. These are evidences of the spiritual forces at work in our lives. And this week, we're going to talk about why and really how all of this kind of works together. The way this kind of works, the way it does. And what it really boils down to is the fact that when God created the universe, back even to Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything, he built within the universe certain laws. Not just physical laws like the laws of motion and energy, thermodynamics, and all the things we learn about in school, but he also built within the universe spiritual laws. And those laws operate whether we see them at work or not, whether we want them to work or not. If you think about it, we don't see gravity at work, right? We don't really think about gravity, but we know gravity is at work in the world whether we want it to or not, or whether we recognize it at not or not. And some would say that the older you get, the more you see gravity at work in your life or even on your body. Anybody want to testify? No, I didn't think so. But we have all of these laws that are at work at any given time in the world. And God has created what we could say a universal economy where laws are at work that govern everything in our world. And the enemy knows exactly how to leverage those laws against us. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 16 through 18, we actually read this last week talking in our series called Habitudes. In Ezekiel 28, God is describing through the prophet the fall of Satan, and he specifically says that Satan used dishonest trade, dishonest uh, trade to bring about violence and sin in the world. 
See, our enemy is not ignorant of God's laws. He's intimately aware of them. And he leverages those laws against us for our harm. And the most important law for our discussion today, for our understanding of the the war that we're in and God's economy, is the law of sowing and reaping. It's a universal law, the law of sowing and reaping. It's a universal law that's understood in many contexts, not just in Christianity, but in all world religions, cultures, in all parts of the world. You may have heard of such things as karma. Have you heard of karma? Or how about the saying, what goes around, what? Comes around, right? You've seen the little circle with white and black on either side. It's yin and yang, right? All across the world, we have this universal principle of the law of sowing and reaping. And even in non-religious arenas like the scientific community, Newton, one of the most brilliant men in the world that has ever lived, and especially one of the fathers of modern science and his third law, he states that every action, there must be an equal and opposite what? Reaction. What you sow, you will reap. In mathematics and chemistry, every equation and every formula must come to a balance. Right? This is why... A just and holy God in his righteous nature cannot just permit sin to go unpunished. You know, people ask the question, why does God send people to hell? It's because you reap what you sow. What is perpetrated must be judged. A just and holy God cannot permit sin to go unanswered. This is why our actions are not without consequence. Jeremiah 17, verse 10, the prophet speaking for God says, I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, We must all stand before Christ to be judged. We'll each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we've done in this earthly body. And our key verse today is Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. You can highlight this in your Bible or write this in your notes in your worship guide. It should be there for you. Galatians 6, 7, Paul says to the church of Galatia, Do not be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you, what's that word? Plant. You will always harvest what you plant. This is the law of sowing and reaping. And for the Christian, as we understand Christ's work on the cross and his saving work that he's done for us and through our faith in Christ, we are free from the penalty of sin, which is eternal judgment in hell, eternal consequences being separated from God for eternity. Salvation brings freedom from the penalty of sin and from the curse of death, but it does not free us from the consequences of sin. See, every once in a while, my kids will bring home a plant from school. Those of you that have kids have probably have had this happen a time or two. They'll bring home, uh, the teacher, I guess, just assumes that you want to, you know, make sure that their plant grows because, you know, they're never going to think about it. And then they're upset when it doesn't bloom. And, and so they send this, this seed and pot home for you to take care of. And, and uh, I, I remember a few times my, my kids would bring one home and they really wanted that sunflower just to grow and bloom and, you know, to be able to plant it in the backyard. And it didn't matter how badly they wanted it to be a sunflower. 
It didn't change the fact that the seed inside was not a sunflower seed. It was some kind of bush, some kind of green plant. I don't know. I'm not a green thumb. Ask Kevin Smithwick. That's his department. It's some kind of green plant. So it didn't matter how, much, how badly they wanted a sunflower. If a sunflower seed wasn't planted, a sunflower would not grow. They may want it really badly, but it doesn't change the fact that the seed planted is what you will harvest. It doesn't matter what you wanted it to be. Whatever seed you sow in this life, that is what you are going to reap. And we need to understand this truth today. We will reap. We will. Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, God says to the prophet Moses, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not what, church? Excuse the guilty. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Here God through Moses says, I do not excuse the guilty. See, the penalty of sin, judgment, and separation from God can be forgiven. Our relationship with God can be restored, but the truth of the matter is that sin has an effect. It has a far-reaching effect. Sin will always have consequences. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Paul to the church of Corinth says this, remember, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Not only will the kinds of seed you sow determine what kind of crop that you harvest, but what kind of crop you harvest, the more you sow, the more of that harvest you will also reap. So not only do we have this law of sowing and reaping, that whatever we send out, we are going to receive, along with the law of sowing and reaping, is number two, the second law we need to look at today, is the law of increase. We have the law of sowing and reaping and the law of increase. You will not only reap what you sow, but the law of increase says that anything that is sown will grow. Will grow. Like a seed, when it's planted, grows, matures, and reproduces, the spiritual seeds we sow will also grow, mature, and reproduce. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this. He says, give, and you'll receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. You don't just get equal exchange. When we sow a spiritual seed, we get back far more than what we sowed in the first place because what is sown not only is harvested, but it grows. Your seed will grow to reproduce in abundance in the more than you could possibly imagine. And not only does good seed grow abundantly, but also wicked seed grows abundantly. And you will not be the only one affected. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 the high writer of Hebrews says this. He says, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life for those who are not only who are not holy will not see the Lord. Verse 15 says, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Wicked seed 
turns into bitter roots. And just like this image, if you can see that, just like this image of a root system, what starts out as a little poisonous seed becomes a poisonous root, will grow to a complex, multifaceted system of dysfunction intertwined in your life. One seed corrupts many parts and even branches off to infect and affect others. Though on the outside, we see one area of our lives, or we might focus on one of these trees, like maybe your marriage is in trouble, or maybe you, you have a habit that you just can't kick. There's one area that you're really just focused on, your, your, your poisonous tree that is developed in your life, your area of dysfunction. Maybe you have uncontrollable anger or, or something that you just are struggling with day in and day out. But the cause of that dysfunction boils down to bitter roots that have planted deep into your soul and are manifesting as that dysfunction in your life. See, what we don't understand about sin is that sin will always have a far more devastating effect on our lives than we think it will. You cannot contain the effects of sin to remain within the confines of your own life. It will spread out to hurt many others in the process of increase. You ever been to the lake or been on a body of water and taken a, a rock and just kind of chucked it in there? You know, I, sometimes when I'm trying to skip rocks, it's more like I'm just dumping rocks in and skipping them across the water. But sometimes you like to take the biggest boulder you can find and just pretend you're Hercules and chuck it as far as you can and let it splash in the water. When that rock hits, what happens? Ripples, right? The ripples continue to go beyond what you can see. And the same is true for wicked seeds in our lives. They create ripples in our lives and continue to expand and go on beyond what we can even see. And many sins of our past catch up to us later when we least expect it or when we thought we were surely done away with it. These sinful seeds are the catalyst of bitter roots. And bitter roots can be any emotion tainted by sin or an offense unforgiven because if you look at the trail, an offense leads to unforgiveness, which leads to resentment, which leads to bitterness, which leads to multiple areas of dysfunction in your life. It can be the result of unholy judgments, curses, vows, or any other turmoil exploited by the enemy and used to wreak havoc in your life. And it's important to understand that bitter roots begin to take hold the moment they are set into motion. The moment you sow wicked seed, they begin to attack and infest infester in your life. And it's vitally important that these, we understand these two laws of sowing and reaping and increase as we discuss other types of seed that we sow that the enemy exploits and use against us because they play a vital role in the economy of God and restrict our access to the rich and satisfying life Jesus came to provide when exploited by the enemy. So to recap quickly, we will reap what we sow, Christian or non-Christian alike, what we sow will grow beyond our control, whether for good or for bad, for blessing or for dysfunction, turmoil, or spiritual oppression. And the question we must ask now as we understand sowing and reaping in this law of increase is what are some other spiritual seeds we might sow that we might be completely unaware of? What are some things we might be sowing and effectively are cursing ourselves and those we love and those around us rather than blessing ourselves? 
and those around us. And I believe the most neglected type of seeds we sow and one of the most powerful are our words. Because words are a creative force and are powerful seeds. We need to understand that we were made in the image of God. And if you think about right there at the beginning, in the beginning, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the very first day, it says God did what when he created? He spoke. He spoke everything into existence. If you flip over into the New Testament to John chapter 1, we see that Jesus is referred to as the very word of God and that God created nothing that wasn't created by the word. God used Jesus, who was his mouthpiece, who was his word, to create everything there is. And God made us in his image. And within us is also powerful words. And because we're made into his image, these words that we speak become a creative and powerful force in this world and having a powerful effect among those around us. Proverbs chapter 13, 3. We're going to read several verses quickly. Proverbs 13, 3 says, those who control their tongue will have a long life, but opening your mouth can ruin everything. Proverbs 15, 4, gentle words are a tree of life. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. And James in the New Testament, James chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, James says, indeed, we all make many mistakes. If we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Our words are a powerful, creative force. Jesus said that we will give an account for every idle word spoken. And I believe it's because our words have authority. They were given as a gift to humanity. Think of the entire animal kingdom, every other creature that exists, and not one has been given the gift of language as mankind. Words are powerful. And when man is in unity of language, we can accomplish anything. If you look back in the book of Genesis and the story of the Tower of Babel, God comes down to the city and says, look what they've done. Now that they've done this, they can accomplish anything. There was great evil happening. And God said, if they continue the way they're going, nothing would be withheld from them. And guess what he did? He separated the what? The languages. When mankind is in unity of language, we can accomplish anything. No, matter, no wonder why when the internet was created, the technology has exploded over double year after year. We can't keep up with it, what we're able to do with a united language. Jesus said, as Christians, as followers of Christ, if we were to speak to a mountain in faith, our words would have power over the mountain in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus said if we speak to spiritual realities and what we want to bind or loose, that our words have power in Matthew 16, 19. James said that our prayers have power in James 5, 16. Our words have incredible power. 
And when we speak, whatever we speak, we bind ourselves and those we speak to to the manifestation of those words. We can either bring life and administer grace to ourselves and others, or we can bring death through discouragement, cursing, and evil. And a lot can be revealed about what a person thinks and believes about themselves or even about God just by listening to the words they speak. Luke chapter 6, 45, uh, Jesus said, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you slay flows from where, church? What is in your heart? What you speak flows from what is inside of you. Words are important. So much so that our salvation even depends on it. Paul said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, we have to confess Jesus as our Lord with our mouths. We literally have to speak those words. Why? Because what we say flows from what is inside of us. If we cannot speak the words, Jesus is Lord, it reveals that there's not true faith and belief with inside our hearts. But when we speak those words, Jesus is Lord, we bind ourselves to the manifestation of those words, which brings about the salvation of our souls. Words are a powerful force that we take for granted, especially when we don't understand the implication of their effect on spiritual realities. There are many words that we speak that we don't recognize as having a powerful effect over us and others, planting bitter seeds within our soul, creating trouble. That's why the psalmist said, God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be right in your sight, O Lord. Because guarding our speech is that important. And there are three word seeds that are also spiritual laws in the economy of God that we need to look at today that are not bringing about harvest of blessing with us because we struggle with these words. But they're bringing in bitter root harvest leading to dysfunction in our lives. And these laws, the reason why we're looking at these laws is because they are activated by the way we choose to speak. And the first law that we're going to look at, the first word seed that we're going to look at today, number one, is the law of unforgiveness. The law of unforgiveness is one such word seed. See, God asks us as followers of Christ to be willing to forgive. And when we're choosing, when we're willing to forgive, he gives us the grace and the power to do it. Ephesians chapter 4.32, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, says, instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And the problem with us today is we fail to recognize that until we actually can say the words, I forgive you, we have yet to forgive. Jesus says what you say flows from what is in your heart. And if you can't bring yourself to say, I forgive you, you in essence are saying, I don't forgive you. A few weeks ago, we were reading Matthew chapter 18, and Jesus said, if you don't forgive, the Father will not forgive you either. And he will turn you over to the tormentors to place you in a spiritual stronghold to torment you until you have paid your debt. Unforgiveness leads to torment, leads to resentment, a spiritual stronghold, and invites the demonic to work in your life. And some key indicators that we could point to that reveal that we have unforgiveness in our heart or is the way we speak or saying things like this. I'll give you a few examples. One is, I'll forgive you, but I can never forget. 
You might have said some of these in your own life. I just can't respect my father or mother for what they did. I don't hate them. I just don't like them. They'll never learn if I keep making it easy for them. I can never forgive my parents for what they did to me. Or how about, I'll forgive you, but I'm not really to deal with the issue, and I need to go pray first, because we're super spiritual. Spiritual. I'll forgive you, but I can't talk to you right now and really want nothing to do with you. This isn't right. I'm not going to keep forgiving you over and over until you pray about it, get right with God, and come back to me when you're fixed. Or how about, I just don't want to forgive you right now. What we say flows from what is in our hearts. And I'm so thankful that God does not treat us that way. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all wickedness. God does not withhold forgiveness from us, but he's holding his breath ready to forgive when we ask. The blood of Christ not only brings the spiritual cleansing, but it's powerful enough to stop that root of unforgiveness to grow in your life if you take your offense immediately to the cross to forgive just as Christ forgives us. According to the Episcopos in the Master Teaching Series on Inner Healing and Deliverance, they cite this about forgiveness. They said, when you're offended, we must act according to God's word. We must be willing to confront the issue. Don't rationalize the offense or hold on to it, or it will grow into bondage and torment, which I believe is many of our first and only reaction. In other words, a bitter root or root of bitterness will grow up to trouble you, placing you into a spiritual stronghold when you hold on to unforgiveness. The enemy will use this as an open door to oppress you, trouble you, and those around you. We need to not only be willing to forgive, but to speak the words, I forgive you, aloud in all authority, or else we may go into unforgiveness and not even realize it. And marriage is a perfect example of this. Many times we just try to get over the issue, get through it, sweep it under the rug, and let peace return. But yet the bitter root is left to grow and fester, which is why we foresee struggle and offenses before they happen. It's like we're holding our breath ready to pounce as soon as that offense is coming because we're acting and holding on to that resentment. We're anticipating the offense prepared to respond out of bitterness as soon as it happens. And when we respond, our response is usually larger and greater than what we know it should even be. It's vitally important, and if not more important, that even as parents, we teach our children not just to say, I'm sorry when they make a mistake or when they wrong someone, but we teach them to say the words, I'm sorry, as the offended party. That we don't just reinforce the idea that the one in need of repentance is solely responsible for uh, restoring the relationship, but the person who was offended is responsible for forgiveness in order to bring about that restoration, helping them guard their hearts from an early age. You see, we wonder why we have a hard time feeling joy and peace. It's because we're carrying so much resentment due to unforgiveness. We haven't released it properly. We've allowed roots of bitterness to be planted and fester, corrupting many areas of our lives, keeping us in bondage. Unforgiveness is the first law and the first word seed we need to guard against. The second word seed we need to look at today is the law of judgments. The law of judgments. 
In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and James chapter 2, verse 1, they both indicate to us that there is a law of judging. Not only will you be judged with the same judgment you are using to judge, but that level of judgment will be used against you. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says to the church of Rome, just after he describes in Romans chapter 1, all of this heinous wickedness in the world and the way the world's been corrupted to live in an anti-God way, lest many sins and things that are worthy of death. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, right after that diatribe on evil and wickedness in the world, he says this. He says, you may think you can condemn such people, talking about those who are far from God, the lost, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For, who, for you who judge others do the very same things. Let that sink into your heart. When you judge people who are far from God, when people who have no knowledge of God, who are not followers of Jesus Christ, when you judge them, you are making yourself guilty of the very same things. James said, if you break one of God's laws, it's the same as breaking them all. And when you set a measure up where you feel like you can cast judgment against those who are far from God, that you are breaking that law of judging and therefore are just as guilty. I mean, think about the way you feel about atheists. Think about the way you feel about those who support abortion or the other issues in our culture like same-sex marriage rights and any un other ungodly viewpoint in our culture, the things that we wrestle with that we hear in the news and all the things we rant about on social media. Think about how you feel about Muslims and other terrorist groups overseas and ISIS and, and the like. Think about how you feel about them and how you've been speaking about them in conversation. Is there judgment or compassion? Oh, but Pastor Joey, they're wicked sinners. If you've been watching the news, they're murderers. They're barbarians. They should go to hell for what they've done. Yes, and according to the word of God, so should you. So should I. We're all guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And every one of us are guilty of judging at one time or another because it's easy to deflect light off of ourselves and place it on someone else. And look at their sins. You might say, Pastor Joey, I don't think I'm very judgmental. I think I'm pretty accepting and I'm a pretty tolerating person. And that might be true, but just for argument, let's look at Matthew 5.22 and what Jesus says about judging. Matthew 5.22, Jesus says, I say, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the courts. If you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Here Jesus addresses three specific things. Number one is anger. He said, if you are angry, you're subject to judgment. Why? Because prolonged anger equals unforgiveness. It's an open door to oppression and other sins. It's an open door to the enemy for demonic control. You're basically inviting the spirits into your life. Number two, we see the word idiot. In the original language, this is the term raka. Somebody say raka. Raka means to curse, to vilify. It's abusively disparaging speech or writing. It's unholy hatred. 
It's one thing to hate sin. It's another thing to hate the sinner. And our words reflect the true nature of our hearts. And we see a lot of racha in our culture. On TV, social media, and common day language. I was shocked to hear some of the things my daughter says is spoken about in the middle school. There's a lot of raka going on. And when we let obscenities fly out of our mouths to swear at or vilify others, it reveals what spirit is really at work within us. It's a demonic attitude that's manifesting in demonic speech that is subject to the judgment of God. Swearing is the devil's language because he uses it to vilify, denigrate, condemn, disparage, and destroy. Parents that swear at their children aren't building their children up. They're tearing them down. Spouses that swear at each other aren't building them up. They're tearing them down. And you and I, when we curse, we vilify, we act out of anger towards others, we're not building people up and showing the love of Christ. We are tearing each other down. The third thing he addresses is the phrase to curse. This is in the original language, literally means saying, thou fool. Jesus said, whoever says this is in danger of hellfire. This can also be translated as calling someone dull or stupid, or as if to say, shut up. You're heedless or a moral blockhead. You're apparently absurd. This speech is an act of condemnation because it's a, a, a sense of pridefulness in yourself, self-conceitedness. You're setting yourself up as something more superior, more valued, worthy to judge or evaluate someone else, putting them down and to feel less than or in a place you think is beneath you. And let's take a quick poll. This is participation time. By show of hands... How many of us are guilty of judging in at least one of these ways? Keep your hands up if you are at least guilty of two of those ways. Three? That's what I thought. And what did Paul say in Romans chapter 2, verse 1? When you judge, you are guilty of the very same things. We are all guilty. And remember, we reap what we want, church. So, and those poisonous seeds, if left unintended, will grow up and corrupt our lives. We need to repent of those unholy judgments and cancel the power and effects of those that we have spoken over the people we love in our lives and over the things we've even spoken of ourselves. We need to take it to the blood of Christ and guard our speech because we don't realize what we're sowing into the world. And you wonder why your spouse or your kids, or your coworkers, or the people in your life don't feel close to you after you've spoken evil to them. You, don't, you wonder why they don't just want to come and, and hug you when you've spoken in such a manner or judge them. It's because sin has an effect. And it has a far-reaching effect. The third law we want to look at tonight is the law of vows. This is the third law of words that we're going to look at today, the law of vows. A vow is a solemn promise to do a specified thing. There are really two types of vows that we take. There are outer vows and inner vows. 
Outer vows are spoken with the mouth, are spoken aloud. These are promises that we bind ourselves to by nature of an agreement, either to be blessed by fulfilling the agreement or to be cursed by not following through the agreement. There are vows all throughout Scripture that we can look at. And God takes our vows very seriously. In Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, God says through Moses, A man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a pledge under oath must never break it. He must do exactly what he said he would do. In Matthew chapter 5, 33 through 37, Jesus teaching about vows, he says this. He says, you've also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by earth because earth is his footstool. Do not say by Jerusalem for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes I will or no I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Some vows in our lives can be good. We think of the most common, which are marriage vows. They are, they are holy and honorable and blessed in the right context. And God uses these vows to bring about his will in the world, which is to have the conception and raising up of godly offspring to help bring the world to life. Those vows are holy and good. But marriage vows aren't the only types of vows that we make. And many of the vows we make, we don't make in line with God's will, but we do so out of a sinful attitude. And we do so ever so flippantly. And we say things like, I swear to what? God. Anybody say that? I swear to God. Do you think, even when we say things flippantly, whether we're trying to be honorable or whether we're trying to hide the true motives of our heart, do you think a just and holy God, will you just get away with swearing an oath to him and not fulfill it? No, he won't. You reap what you sow. And this is such a vitally important thing because we miss this every day. We miss how our language affects our spiritual lives because we don't understand God's economy and how it works. And we're heaping curse after curse upon ourselves for taking the spiritual realm for granted. And when we speak these words, these vows, we're binding ourselves to the fulfillment of those vows and God takes us at our word. Jesus said, let your yes be yes or your no be no. Anything beyond this is an open door for the enemy to plant seeds of bitterness within your heart, your soul, and ultimately lead you into strongholds, trouble, and dysfunction. All the tools the enemy uses to bring about his plans to steal, kill, and destroy all throughout your life. You have outer vows, and the second type of vows is inner vows. These aren't spoken aloud, but they're spoken within the soul. And they usually happen when we're young and when we're a child. According to SmokyRainCounseling.com, in an article called Breaking Inner Vows and Judgments, they say that inner vows and bitter root judgments are responses to hurts, unfulfilled expectations, or unmet needs. They can be defined as decisions or determinations designed by the child and set into the heart as templates or tracks to follow until they're broken. Often vows and judgments are intertwined, both formed in response to the same hurt. Such declarations are made primarily for one of two reasons, either as a defensive reaction to wounding or because of a choice to reject a parent. A vow formulated decades ago may be forgotten by the conscious mind until brought into awareness through depth counseling or inner healing work. And unlike other childish proclivities and peculiarities, inner vows don't alter as we mature. They're like threads that continue to be woven into the fabric of our lives 
and relationships as adults. An example of some inner vows may be, I'll never be fat like my mother. I'll never let anyone get close to me ever again. I'll never yell at my kids the way my father did. In the Piscopos, in their Masterwork series on inner healing and deliverance, they write about inner vows. They say some call inner vows self-made promises. A vow is a promise. An inner vow is a determination set into motion by the mind and the heart. Most often early in life, the vows we make currently also affect us, but the inner vow is usually made when we're children and is also most often forgotten. The inner being persistently retains the programming no matter what changes of mind and heart we make later in life. This distinctive mark of an inner vow is that it resists the normal maturing process. Inner vows resist change. We do not grow out of them. Inner vows may not become manifest immediately in behavior. They may rest completely forgotten and dormant until triggered by the right person or persons or situations. And having forgotten them, we're unaware they exist and do not realize the effect they have on us. And we've all made these inner vows at varying intensity or degrees. Another example of an inner vow is that you have a child, a son, who's beaten by his father. And he swears in his heart, I will never be like him focuses his whole life on being kind and considerate. But when he gets married and has children of his own, he doesn't realize the emotions that will be triggered in him when his patience is tested by his own children. And he finds himself acting overly harsh time and time again. And he feels horrible guilt and shame over the harsh characteristics that he sees in himself that he saw in his father, that he swore he would never repeat but yet somehow he can't break free from the anger problems that he experiences. And the enemy uses that to bring about more dysfunction, guilt, and shame in his life. Inner vows are open doors to the enemy because they are rooted in pride and serve as a defense mechanism to compensate for a hurt. And because children don't know how to properly address and process pain, emotional pain, they bury the pain deep within their soul, creating bitter roots that the enemy exploits later in life. And as I began exploring the truth of these inner vows in my own life, I began to unpack some of the roots of my own struggles. I found that much of the things that I struggled with stemmed from some vows that I made as a child. I've shared this before with the church. I was teased a lot growing up. And I remember one day, you know, as I was praying through, the Holy Spirit brought this back to my mind. One day, I was being teased, and I thought, if people don't like what I have to say, then I just won't say anything at all. I'll just disappear in the background. And to this day, I still struggle with conversation in public. I still struggle with participating in group conversations. There are times my wife and I will be hanging out with somebody, and she'll hit me, and I'll be like, what? She's like, you're being weird. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, you're not saying anything. It's like, I have nothing to say. I'm just listening. Everyone else can talk. I'll just let them talk. I struggle with that even today. Why? Because I made a vow when I was a child not to speak. There are many vows that have been brought to my mind. And often these vows can be discovered through consistent patterns of struggle in your life. Think about things you wrestle with and struggle with. Many of the issues you deal with, many of the spiritual strongholds we face are simply a result of the power our words, the laws of sowing and reaping, increase, forgiveness, judgments, and vows work in our lives. And we're completely unaware. An offense is made, so you make a judgment. You sow bitter words, 
Hold on to unforgiveness. Make a vow, and it grows, festers, and develops into spiritual strongholds, the playground for the enemy to work out his plans to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. And we see the manifestation of those strongholds when we see physical things begin to manifest like anxiety, depression, sickness, infirmities of all kinds. Many illnesses that we have today are related to stress. You can pull up WebMD and it'll tell you stress-related on just about all the things that we deal with. Why? Because spiritual strongholds place an inordinate amount of stress on the body because of your sick soul. And what many of us don't understand is the primary reason that we get addicted to anything is not because we're predisposed to addiction through hereditary means, but because we have a bitter root that has been left to fester and grow and trouble us, and it makes us so sick spiritually and becomes devastating in our lives that we begin to try to medicate that sickness with something that will take the pain away. We don't even know why we're sick. We just try to take the pain away. And for some, we might medicate with food. Some might do it with drugs. Some might do it with alcohol, with pornography. Some might jump from relationship to relationship, trying to feel loved. Some just might be looking for sexual experiences. Some might be doing a change of identity. You name it. All the things that we see as tendencies and sins in our world. All the things the enemy exploits within us to lead us to our dysfunction. Those things, those sins are not the problem. They're just the medicine we're trying to use to treat the problem. The real problem is the bitter root, the sickness in our souls that needs to be healed. So the door can be closed and we can be set free from those spiritual attachments empowering the struggles. You see, when we start to look at our lives through the lens of spiritual warfare, through the lens of the scripture, and we partner with the Holy Spirit to examine our souls, to expose those bitter roots, those root causes of the struggle we face, not only can we chop the struggle trees down, leaving the roots exposed to grow a plant again, but we can pluck out the roots altogether to never struggle with it again. And the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to give you the will to forgive and break the power of judgments and vows in your life and deliver you from every stronghold. Isaiah 54, 17, this is a battle cry for the church. It says, in the coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised up to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. Your vindication, your freedom is guaranteed by Jesus Christ. No weapon turned against you of the enemy can succeed in your life. And this fight that we're in is a battle for your soul. The enemy wants you to sin. He wants to heap curses upon yourself and your family. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So when we fight back, if we're going to begin fighting back and taking the fight to the enemy, it first begins in the mind. Our beliefs need to come into alignment with the Word of God. And then our words need to come into alignment with the Word of God. And when our words and our beliefs are in line with the Word of God, it's then that the Holy Spirit can go and do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Breaking down every chain, every stronghold, stripping us of every weight that slows us down, and every sin that so easily besets us.
And today, church, we need to begin the work of awareness. We need to ask the Spirit of God to reveal the seeds that we've sown in our lives, the roots of bitterness that lay dormant within us that are still left to fester, the unforgiveness, the judgments, and the vows. We need to ask him to reveal these things so that we can begin taking it to the cross. And I'm going to invite us today, as we close, to read this verse together. And I'm going to ask you to commit this to prayer this week. Ask the Holy Spirit to partner with you to actually make this verse come to life in you this week. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Let's read this together. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path to everlasting life. This should be your prayer this week. As you get on your knees before God and you spend time with the Lord, pray this prayer. Say, God, what is in me that offends you? Where's the darkness in me? What's the root that is causing this dysfunction and these sins, these struggles to be manifest in my life? What is giving an open door to the enemy, which is putting me under his control? What is it in me? And let the Holy Spirit bring to your mind the vows, the judgments, the unforgiveness, all the things that have left dormant that you may even have forgotten about long ago. When he brings those things to your mind, confess them to the Lord. If you have unforgiveness in your heart, you need to confess that unforgiveness before God. And when you pray, confess your sin. And remember, you are instantly forgiven by God when you confess. You are instantly cleaned when you confess and when you pray. And when you pray and you confess that to God, then speak aloud right there, just before you and the Lord. Say, God, I forgive that person. Name their name. Say what they did and say, I forgive them for that in the name of Jesus. I forgive them by the blood of Christ. And then ask God to bless them. And when we ask God to bless those that have offended us, our hearts come into a line with the grace of God and you'll be forgiving others the way Christ, God through Christ, has forgiven you. Speak it out loud. Let that creative force unleash forgiveness and grace and love into the world. If you've been a person who's made rash and quick judgments, confess those judgments to the Lord. Ask his forgiveness. Plead the blood of Christ over your life and begin to partner with God, walking in humility, asking for compassion to love people the way you love your own self. You would want grace and forgiveness for yourself and for your own failures, so you should want that for others. If you've broken outer vows, confess those to God. Ask his forgiveness. Plead the blood of Christ over your life that those vows, the power of those vows would be broken and canceled their effect in the name of Jesus. If you've made inner vows, confess those vows to God. Speak the vow out loud. Say, God, I promised I would never be like my father. God, I promised I would never be like my mother. I swore I would never let anyone hurt me ever again. And when you speak that out loud, say, I come out of agreement with that vow in the name of Jesus. Today, I place myself under the blood of Christ. And through the blood of Christ, I cancel the power and effect of that vow in the name of Jesus and come to war over your sin. It's time we take this war serious, church. As we close, I'm going to invite us all to stand together and to pray 
a prayer. Let's all stand. The prayer is going to be on the screen. When we're done with the prayer, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to open the altar for response. For whatever God has been speaking to your heart, whatever the Holy Spirit is leading on your heart, you just come and fall before God as the team prays and sings. And let's let victory be released in this place. Let's pray this together, church. I forgive any person who has ever hurt me, disappointed me, abandoned me, mistreated me, or rejected me in the name of Jesus. I renounce all ungodly thought patterns and belief systems in the name of Jesus. I renounce all ungodly covenants, oaths, or vows made by myself or my ancestors in the name of Jesus. I plead the blood of Christ over my life, canceling the power and effects these sins have had over me in my future generations. I ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, to forgive me for making unrighteous judgments and speaking evil over others. Forgive me for making unholy vows and not keeping my sworn oaths in the name of Jesus. I repent of my sins to you today. I give my life wholeheartedly to you. Thank you for dying for me so the power of death can be broken. Thank you for freeing me from the curse of the law through the blood of Christ. Thank you for taking my punishment upon myself. I accept your gift of forgiveness, and I choose to walk this day to honor and serve the Lord. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Father in heaven, I thank you for the victory that's happening even now in this place. Through the blood of Christ and the power of Jesus' name. Again, I pray against all spiritual forces at work that would come against your church right now, that would raise up pride in the hearts of people that need to fall on their knees and confess their sins. God, I pray that your power would be unleashed, your presence would be felt, God, and your victory would be revealed as your glory fills this place now as the church responds. God, let us be the church where we're not full of pretense, but we're full of passion for letting you fill our lives to set us free so that we can share the love of Christ with others. God, I pray now as we pray that the church would respond through the name of Jesus. Amen.